Well, if you were to visit the city of Jerusalem, um, you would see from the view on the Temple Mount looking toward the Mount of Olives, on the western slope of the Mount of Olives facing the old city, there is an oddly shaped church that sits in the middle of a beautiful garden. It's a tiny little chapel, really. I hesitate to call it a church, though it is that, but it's, a, it's more of a, almost a one-room chapel. It's called Dominus Flevit. Dominus Flevit. It's a Latin phrase which means the Lord wept. And this little church is built on that location and called by that name because this is the traditional site where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. In fact, I think we've got a picture of the church. I wanted to show it to you. It's so unique. It's kind of tucked into the mountain there, almost camouflaged, but it's, it's shaped like a teardrop. I said it was an oddly shaped uh, little chapel. It's shaped like a teardrop to commemorate the weeping of Jesus over Jerusalem. Let me read to you the text in Matthew 23 where that event took place there on the Mount of Olives. It's in verse number 37, Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus, in that location, weeping and saying these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you would not. I mean, if you know this, this passage, right, you're familiar with the weeping of Jesus over Jerusalem and this phrase, this lament, really, of Jesus, how often he says, I would have gathered you and you would not. What is it that Jesus is saying? What, what's being expressed in this lament and in these words? It's obvious, isn't it? He's, he's looking at the city of Jerusalem, but really the city more representative of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Jesus is weeping over bricks and mortar or stones and, and lumber. He's weeping over people. And he says to them, how I have desired to, to, to draw you to myself, how I have longed, I have been so anxious and willing to rescue you, to guard you and to protect you, to shield you, and you would not. That's his uh, lament. That's his weeping. And you would not. By the way, it's not the first time that cry has come from the eye of God or that lament from the voice of God. Listen to what Proverbs chapter 1 verse 24 says, God speaking, I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. By the way, that's not God's word to you today, is it? God wouldn't say that to you, would he? I have been reaching for you. And you're ignoring my reach. I have been calling you to myself and you would not receive my call. Well, this is what Jesus is saying to Jerusalem. And by the way, I should tell you that because of the rejection of the Jewish people, because his arms had been reached out to them and they would not, as Jesus says in verse 37, 
the result or the consequence of that uh, is spelled out plainly in the next few verses in chapter 24 in the first two verses. And here's what Jesus will tell them in those verses, that within one generation of the lifetime of Jesus, the city of Jerusalem would be completely destroyed, the nation would be abolished, and the people of Israel would be scattered amongst the nations of the world. For 2,000 years, the nation would cease to exist. Jesus warned of that in Matthew 24. Verse number one says Jesus was going out from Jerusalem. He was departing from the temple and his disciples walking with him came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. They're walking out of the temple, down through the valley, up past where Jesus has just been lamenting, going up the slope of the Mount of Olives and the, and the disciples go, Jesus, look, look back. And they turn his attention back to show him the beautiful compound of Herod's great temple there, the temple of God. And they were saying, isn't that beautiful? Look at the glory of the temple of God in Jerusalem. And his answer to them is in verse number two. He says, do you see all these things? Do you see the city? Do you see the temple? I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And in fact, that was fulfilled. That prophecy of our Lord was fulfilled uh, within one generation. About 30, 35 years later, it was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the Romans completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. The fact of the matter is that when Jesus, knowing what is going to happen to the people and knowing what is going to happen to the the nation because of their rejection, he sits and laments, weeping over that future fall that is coming, lamenting and weeping over their rejection, and it reveals, his heart is revealed by his tears. By the way, that happens often, doesn't it? The tears often reveal the heart. What the eyes cry over, the heart loves. What moves the heart to tears is what really we value. And what it reveals to us about the heart of God is this heart, as we've been discussing, of a gatherer. That God didn't want the Jewish people to be scattered. He wanted them to be gathered unto him. And it reveals his heart as a gatherer. We've been talking about he who gathers in recent weeks. We've learned that God gathers us together for the joy of worship. Man, what a privilege we've had together today to assemble for worship. It was our beautiful privilege. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that God gathers his people to give our lives great significance and deep eternal purpose. Last week, we talked about the fact that God is gathering a people to himself, to his table. He wants us to enjoy eternal life with him. Today we're going to be talking about this passage in Matthew 24, or 23, I should say, in Psalm 91, where we learn that God gathers his people to give us his protection. His protection. Before we leave Matthew 23, I want you to circle a phrase or underline it if you would. In verse number 37, would you underline the phrase, um, I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her children. Here's what you should underline under her wings. Would you underline that? Under her wings. 
Not a picturesque, it's a, it's a beautiful word picture, isn't it? I would have gathered you together like a, like a mother hen gets her little chickens or her little chicks together. Now, I have to tell you, I'm not a farm boy. I didn't, I didn't grow up on the farm. I don't know a whole lot about chickens unless it's coming from Bojangles or KFC, that chicken I love. I don't know a lot about how chickens operate on the farm, but I, I, I did a little bit of searching and I found a lot of pictures to illustrate this. I want you to look at this picture up on the screen. It's the best one I found. Is that a great picture? I mean, this mother hen and those two little chicks looking out from under the wings of comfort, the wings of protection, the wings of care, so safely tucked up and under there, you can only see, a, a barely see a couple of them. There's a third one on her left there that you can't hardly see, just his little feet under there. These little chicks finding great protection under the wings of their mother. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft I would have gathered you, you together just like that. Like a chicken, like a mother hen gathers her chicks. By the way, did you know that that phrase, this idea of God gathering us together like a, like a, a hen does her brood, this is an idea that is repeated in the scriptures at least a dozen times. The Bible talks about this heart of God to gather us under his wings at least a dozen times. Now, we're going to make our way to Psalm 91, but I just want to walk you through a few psalms where you find this picture, because I don't ever want you to forget it. So go ahead and leave Matthew 23. Go back to the book of Psalms, but not chapter 91. Begin in Psalm 17. Would you go there? We're going to, we're going to start in Psalm 17. We're going to make our way forward to Psalm 91. But I want you to, to turn to each of these four passages, because I want you to, I want you to underline this phrase in each. So go to Psalm 17 in verse number 8. Here's the prayer of the psalmist. He says, keep me as the apple of, of the eye, hide me under the shadow of thy wings. There's that phrase, that, that word picture. God, I need your protection. And God, I'm asking you, would you hide me under the shadow of your wings? Would you underline that? And then once you've done so, go to Psalm 36. And uh, again, we're just making our way forward. So go to Psalm 36 and look at verse number 7. Psalm 36 verse 7 says, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. There it is again. It's beautiful. God, because you are so good, let me ask you on both campuses and online, do you believe that God is hesed, that he is good? If you do, would you shout amen? amen. Because of your, verse 7, your loving kindness, it's that Hebrew word, hesed, because you, God, are so kind and long-suffering and patient and good. God, I can trust you. You're not going to be good tomorrow and e or good today and evil tomorrow. You're not going to love me today and reject me tomorrow. God, because I can count on your faithful love, then I will trust you. And I will put my trust under the shadow of thy wings. Go to Psalm 57, if you will. Psalm 57 and verse number 1. Listen to it again. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul trusts in thee, yea, in the shadow of thy wings 
will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Reminds me of that old gospel song, till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more, I'll be safe with him. This is what the psalmist is saying. I'm in a calamity. I'm in a storm. And in this storm, I will find my refuge in my place of safety under the shadow of your wings. Turn one page to Psalm 63 and look at verse 7. Psalm 63, verse 7 says, Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Isn't that beautiful? Over and over again. Again, a dozen times. I've just shown you four. But at least a dozen times the Bible says that we find our shelter in the shadow of his wings. Now go to Psalm 91 where you've got a Bible marker holding your place there. Let's read this passage. You'll see it again in this passage. Psalm 91, beginning in verse number one, scripture says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. He is my God. In Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome, uh, noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings, there it is, under his wings thou shalt trust. His truth shall be thy shield and thy buckler. And you shall not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side and 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh or near unto thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked because you have made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee Neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, even lest you would dash your foot against a stone. And there may not be a more appropriate passage in all of Scripture, any passage more suited to speak to our hearts in the day in which we're living than Psalm 91. Maybe no other passage. Particularly verse number 5. And I want, you to, I want you to take your pen again and I want you to circle this phrase in verse number 5. We just read it where he says, Thou shalt not or shalt not be afraid. I want you to underline that. Here's the word of the Lord in Psalm 91 verse 5. You shall not be afraid afraid. You shall not be afraid. And yet you would agree with me, wouldn't you? There is a lot of fear in our land in these days. There's a lot of fear. Coronavirus has touched our land to be sure, but coronavirus is not crippling our land. Fear is crippling our people. 
I don't mean to minimize or downplay the severity, of course, of the virus. And I would never suggest that we should be anything except cautious and wise in the decisions we make and the ways in which we live. But you and I should know that fear is a crippling disease. And while caution is warranted in these days, the panic that we're seeing, I believe, is not warranted. I would just say that, by the way, and I'm going to get a little bit out of my, uh, out of my lane here to talk about uh, the, uh, the medical uh, ramifications or statistics about coronavirus. But let me just for a second say to you that purely based on logic or mathematics, um, I don't think there is a call for panic and fear. Now, I, I sometimes feel the fear, like all of you, I'm sure, do, but it's not logical. The other night, Tracy and I and my mother were sitting at dinner, and, uh, and, and so we were at a restaurant, and you know that one of the things they're not doing in restaurants any longer is bringing you things like salt and pepper, unless you ask for them, and often when they do, that's the picnic kind of uh, salt and pepper that they bring in the, in the little paper packages. Well, anyway, they didn't bring salt or pepper with our meal, and so we, we needed some, but our, our server had scurried back off. We didn't see her for a while, and we needed to, to season our food a bit. And so there was a couple that was sitting next to us, the booth just across from us, and they got up and left, and I looked, and there's a salt shaker on that table. Now, last year, I would have never thought twice about grabbing that salt shaker. But in this case, I went, ooh, should I get that salt shaker? Literally, I looked to my wife and said, what do you think? Is it, am, I, am I safe to get? Now, here's the fact. If you do the math, there are 330 million people in the United States, right? 330 million. There have been just over 3 million Americans who have tested positive for coronavirus. That's 1%. Purely statistically, 99% of people in this country do not have coronavirus. Probably the people sitting next to me in the booth don't have it. There's a 99% chance that the salt and pepper shaker is not infected with coronavirus. But before I was willing to get up and leave my seat and maybe touch that, that salt shaker, I had to give that some consideration. I'm simply saying to you that while we should be cautious, by the way, the end of the story is I did get the salt and pepper shaker. But I will tell you that my wife handed me hand sanitizer after I used it, okay? <laughs> now, we need to be cautious but not afraid, right? But my point is there is a fear that is gripping our land. It really, really is. And, and Psalm 91 in verse number 5 says, we should not be afraid. Now, not only should I not be afraid because statistically I think I'm pretty well safe, but there's a, there's a much more important reason, and it's found in this passage. It is that I am under the care of Almighty God. Amen? I am under His care, and He gathers us for our own good and for our protection. And so I want you to write some things down as we just sort of work through this encouraging song, which is what psalms are, you know, as we work through this encouraging song of Psalm 91. We know that God gathers us uh, for protection. Just like he invited Israel to be gathered unto himself, he invites us to be gathered. I want to begin by talking about our response to his invitation. Jot that down. Our response to his invitation. Now, 
I mentioned that this is an encouraging psalm, and it surely is that. There's a lot of encouragement uh, in this song. But the passage is also filled with all of the dangers that fill our lives. And there are a lot of dangers. We live in a broken world, right? And there's, this world is full of dangers. In verse number three, he talks about the snare. Surely, verse three says, he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler. Well, the promise of verse three is I can be delivered from the snare, but the reality of verse three is there are snares, right? There, there are fowlers out there. He's using the picture of someone hunting for birds and setting a trap or a snare. Well, we know that we have an enemy who sets traps and snares for us as well. The evil one. Verse number 10 says, there shall no evil befall thee. Well, there is evil in the world. First Peter 5 and verse 8 says that Satan, like a roaring lion, is going to and fro in the earth, seeking whom he may devour. Loved ones, you and I live in a world where our spiritual enemy wants to devour our lives. He wants to destroy what matters in our lives and devour our joy and our testimony, our usefulness for God. Yeah, there are evils and snares and traps in this world. There's also sickness and disease, as we've been talking about. Over and over, Psalm 91 talks about sickness and disease. Verse 3, surely he shall deliver thee from the snare and from the noisome pestilence. The word noisome means the aggressive or the, or the running forward, the assertive disease. This, this rampant virus is what verse number 3 would, would say. It's disastrous. It's aggressive. Verse number five, you should not be afraid of the terror by night. Again, that's disease. Verse number six, nor for the pestilence that walks in the darkness. We've heard corona referred to as, a, as a, an invisible uh, enemy. And then in verse number 10, there shall no, evil, uh, shall no evil befall thee, nor shall any plague come near unto your dwelling. Well, there are diseases. There are sicknesses in the world. Of course there are, and there always have been. And then thirdly, there are battles in this earth. There are attacks on our lives, spiritually and otherwise. Uh, there's warfare to be fought. Verse number five, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by the day. Uh, by the way, uh, Psalm 91 was written by King David, who was a warrior and who led his troops in battle. And you can almost, when you read David's song, you can almost see the ancient battlefield, can't you? The arrows flying by day, the swords clashing, and the battles fighting during the day, those falling on your right and on your left under the sword or the arrow or the, the weaponry of the enemy. And then in the encampment at night when darkness would settle over the land and they would retreat to their tents and their encampments and the, you would hear the moans of the wounded and disease moving through the camp and then the sun would rise the next morning and the, and the, the uh, warfare would begin again. You, you can almost envision David in this setting where, where there's fighting and ambushes and traps and snares and swords and arrows and disease and and he's in the midst of all of that saying, but God is the one who gives us his protection. And the same is true for us. It may not be an actual battle with swords and spears. 
we do live in a world where there's evil and there's sickness and there's disease and there's attacks and there's a spiritual enemy. And it's in the midst of hardship and difficulty that Psalm 91 expresses the heart of God, inviting us to take our refuge in him. Where God is saying, you live in a messed up world, man. You live in a broken world, so come. My wings are open for you. Come and find your refuge in me. And we heard the invitation of Jesus. Matthew 23, we heard Jesus. We, we saw Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, inviting them. And Jesus said to them, and you would not. And we don't want to have that said of us. We don't want it to be said by God of us that we would not respond to his invitation. So how do we do that? In a broken world, a world full of these things that we've been talking about, how is it that we can respond to his invitation? Write these things down. I think the psalmist will help us know how to do it. First of all, we should dwell, and I'm going to use the word intimately. I, I could have said we want to dwell nearby, but intimately, dwell intimately in him. This is verse number one. I want to respond to his invitation by leaning into or drawing near, dwelling intimately with him. Verse number one, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Look at verse nine. Because you have made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, your habitation. Now, verse 1, when he talks about the secret place, he that dwells in the secret place. The, the word secret place literally means he who dwells very, very near or as close as you can get. Like those little chicks in that picture we looked at a few minutes ago who had snuggled so close up to their mother hen, they couldn't get any closer. They had disappeared under her feathers and under her wings. He says, this is what God is inviting us to, to come so close to him, to lean in so intimately with him that we are enveloped in who he is. There's an allusion here, I believe, as well to the Old Testament tabernacle, which existed prior to David, and David wanted to build its permanent replica in the temple, but in the future temple and in, in, in David's future temple and in the tabernacle with which he was so familiar there was, there was this opportunity to go into the holy place, into that intimate inner sanctum in the presence of God. He's saying those who dwell in the secret place, those who lean in close, those who make, verse 9, make God their habitation. The word habitation means the place, very simply, the place where you are at home. And by the way, I should tell you that when this promise is made in Psalm 91, when this encouraging words are given about God's protection, it is all hinging upon verse number one. It assumes a relationship. Let me be perfectly clear. This promise is not extended to every person in the world. It is extended to those who make him their habitation and those who dwell in the secret place and abide under the shadow of the Almighty. It assumes a relationship. It assumes that you've yielded your life to Christ, that you've come to him, that you've made your heart at home in God. That you're not running from him, you're running to him. You're not rejecting and pushing away from him, you're falling before him. 
You've made your dwelling place there. You, you are surrendered to him. Psalm 32 in verse number 7 says, you are my hiding place. Can I, can I tell you who's offered the sheltering wings of Almighty God? It's those who are not hiding from God. They're hiding in God. They're not running away from, they're running to. How can I see or how can I read Psalm 91 and, and hear this great promise and say, I want that shelter, that cover for my life. Well, I need to dwell intimately with him, come to him, give my life to Christ. Some of you maybe haven't even done that yet. You've rejected Christ as your Savior. And this is step number one, to trust in Jesus, confessing your sin. And then once you know Christ, to continue to lean in to that relationship, dwelling intimately with him. Secondly, we, we then respond to his invitation by trusting him completely. We trust in the Lord. Now, by the way, I should say that we trust in the Lord. We learn to trust in the Lord as we hide ourselves in the Lord. This is not a one and done kind of deal. Like I get it day one and I never grow in it. No, the more that I'm near him, the more I'm dwelling with him, the more that I learn to trust him. Why do I know that that's true? Well, look at what verse number two says. At the end of verse number two, it says, in him will I trust. And then in verse number four, he shall cover thee with his feathers under his wings shall you trust. It's under those wings. It's in that place of dwelling intimately with him as my God that I learn to trust him more and more and more. I need to to trust him completely. He alone is my hiding place. He alone is my refuge. He alone is my protector. And he alone is the one that I can trust in. There's a beautiful uh, picture of this, a beautiful illustration of this in the book of Ruth. Many of you are familiar with the book of Ruth and how this pagan uh, girl, Ruth, uh, now a widow comes back to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she needs a husband. And, and so there is a Leverite law of, of, a, of, of a, a, um, when someone dies and they leave a widow, then their kinsman is to marry that widow and raise up children and keep the family name going. Well, Ruth, a pagan, doesn't know God, but she does come to trust in him. And when she comes to Boaz and she meets Boaz for the first time, Boaz says to her, I've heard of you. And you're blessed because you have come to hide yourself under the care of God Almighty. It is in that place of trusting in him and leaning into him that we learn to trust him more. And then thirdly, we respond to his invitation by speaking our confidence and speaking it boldly. Verse number two, I will say. We say those three words with me? Shout it out loud. I will say. Do it one more time. I will say. Can I give you a word of encouragement? Stop listening so much and start talking more. Now, I'm talking about the news when I say that, all right? Stop listening to everything, every syllable, every nanosecond, every report of every infection of every statistic in every state and every county and every school. Just turn it off and say, the Lord is my God in him will I trust. The fear, the fear that cripples us comes when we simply put ourselves under that constant barrage 
And not just the constant barrage of news. Don't misunderstand me. News matters. It's important. Facts matter. But the constant barrage of opinion and, and translation of what those statistics in the news means. Speak. Speak the word of God. Speak the truth of God. Speak the promises of God. He is my protector. So we're invited to come as Israel was. We are now in Christ invited to come under his wings and find his protection. And we should respond to that invitation. Secondly, though, Psalm 91 gives us some information about God's power. Now, if you're going to offer to protect me, I want to know how powerful you are. And so God's power to protect his children is in this passage. Really, uh, primarily in verse number 1. You have two names of God given in verse number one. Four names of God mentioned in the first two verses. But look at verse one. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the, you should underline this, most high. That's a name for God. It's not just a description. It's not an adjective. It's a name. The most high. The Hebrew word for God uh, used in verse one for the word uh, translated most high is Elion. The Lord most high or the Lord El. Elion. It means, Elion means the supreme or the sovereign, as the word is translated in English, the most high. There is no one higher than him. Now, let me just ask you, do you find great confidence and courage in this? That with everything that's happening in our world, there is a sovereign God. Amen. A sovereign God who rules in the affairs of men. And nothing happens that is not under his sovereign control. He is the most high. Secondly, in verse number two, or verse one rather, he is called the Almighty. I will, uh, he who dwells in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. It's not a description. It's not an adjective. It's a name. The Hebrew word, Hebrew name, Shaddai. You've heard of El Shaddai. The Hebrew Shaddai means the most powerful, or here's a way to say it, the infinitely able, the one who is beyond all of our finite ability and beyond it. So he says, Elion Shaddai, the almighty, sovereign Lord. He is, verse number two, or verse number two says, he is my refuge, you see it? He is my refuge and my fortress. That is, he's my shelter from the onslaught. That's, that's my refuge. He is my fortress, means he is my protector. Look at verse number four. He is my shield. That truth it really means that your faithfulness is my shield and my buckler. The word buckler is a, a, a bulwark. Some of you remember the old hymn, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, never failing. The word buckler or bulwark is a, a wall that will stand up against the crashing waves or against the onslaught of the enemy. Here's what he says, that this almighty God, Elyon Shaddai, he is my refuge, my protector, he is my shield, he is my defense. I can trust in him. So here's our declaration. We're going to put it on the screen. I hope you'll write it down and begin to recite it. Say it loudly and daily. The almighty most high God fights for me. He is my refuge and my protector. Do you believe it? 
This is true. This is his invitation. The almighty, most high God fights. For who? For me. That's what the psalm says. He is my refuge and he's my protector. So the psalm says, look, you live in a broken world and there are uh, there is evil and there's danger and there's disease and all of these things, but you're invited. You're invited to lean into God. Do not be afraid. Dwell intimately with him. He will be your protector and your guard. And then, lastly, he makes some promises to us in Psalm 91. Write this down. God's promises that we can trust. Now, when I read the passage earlier, I'm, I think you probably would have taken mental note that this passage makes some pretty bold promises. It does. Pretty bold promises. We're going to talk about those promises, but let me first of all tell you what he doesn't promise. Let me tell you what Psalm 91 is not a guarantee against or what it's not a promise of. Number one, he doesn't promise to keep us from all harm forever. He does not promise that. You must understand all Scripture in light of all other Scripture. And when you read Psalm 91, he doesn't say there's not disease and, 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 and sickness and danger and evil. Uh, he says that he will protect us in that and that he will be with us in that. Ecclesiastes chapter number 3. Um, Ecclesiastes says there is a time in this life to die and there's a time to weep and there's a time to mourn and there's a time to, to uh, fight and be in a battle. So the Bible does say that these things are real in our lives. These dangers are present. John 16, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. You're with me, and I have overcome the world. Philippians 2 tells us about a follower, a faithful follower of Jesus, a pastor um, of the Philippian church, Epaphroditus, who was sick, and he was nearly dead in his illness. In fact, God sometimes uses sickness, doesn't he? He sometimes uses sickness and disease and, and accidents and tragedies to shape us and to, and to make us into the men and women that he wants us to be. And the truth is, ultimately, one of these days, all of us are going to die. If the Lord tarries, we're all going to die of something, right? And so is God failing in his promise if somewhere along the line I, I contract cancer or some other disease and die of that disease. No, we're all going to die. None of us are getting out of this world alive, absent the rapture. And, and so it might be that in those moments we die of some disease or some accident, so even some act of violence. We don't get to choose how we leave. So here's what I want you to hear. Psalm 91 is a promise of his care and his protection, but it is not a guarantee that we will never uh, endure harm at all. Secondly, it is not a promise that he will keep us from our own foolish decisions. And somebody ought to say amen. Because we've lived with the consequences of some of our foolish decisions. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a promise that, that we can do dumb things. And, and that somehow God's going to keep cleaning up and keeping us from the consequences of those things. Uh, somebody somebody uh, I read just recently, um, somebody went to a coronavirus party. Have you heard about these parties? Uh, young people who are having coronavirus parties and gathering with infected people and intentionally uh, trying to infect one another and seeing who will get it. You know what that is? Is it faith? No, it's stupid. No, it's foolish. God doesn't promise that he's going to keep us from that. Now, I'll tell you one of the ways I know that is because Satan knows the Bible. 
And if you go to, don't go now, but in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Satan comes after 40 days to tempt him in the wilderness. And one of his temptations, Satan quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus. Takes him up to the highest part of the pinnacle in Jerusalem. Says, jump down from here. Cast yourself off. Didn't God say? Psalm 91 verse 11. He will give his angels charge over you. And they will bear you up. He said, just go do that, Jesus. And Jesus says, that is tempting God. And you shall not tempt the Lord your God. What Jesus was saying was, Psalm 91 is not a promise to go jump off a building. God's going to catch you. You go jump off a building, the angels will let you fall. Because God will not keep us from our foolish decisions. But, while God doesn't promise to keep us from all harm forever, and he doesn't promise to keep us from our own foolish decisions, he does promise us that along the course of life, as we go through the course of life, that he will guard us. And he'll guard us from, number one, the evil one. Verse number 10 says, There shall no evil befall thee. He shall guard us from the evil one. Isn't this the Lord's prayer in the New Testament, Luke, what, Luke 11? Uh, keep us from the evil one. He'll protect us from Satan. He'll protect us from dangers and diseases. That doesn't mean we'll never get one, but who knows what we might have gotten? Who knows what might have come into our lives how the, had the protecting hand of God not been there? Uh, verse 7, verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, he will protect us. And then he will protect us from difficulties along the path of life. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep, it, keep thee in all thy ways, and they shall bear thee up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Again, not if you go jump off a building, but as you go through the course of life, God uh, protecting you as you go. Now, some of you have grandchildren. Here's what I've discovered. Our kids kept us praying when they were growing up. Our grandchildren really keep us praying. Grandparents understand that. Man, you pray over your children and your grandchildren. and Sometimes we pray things like, God, is there traveling would you just put angels around that car? And would you send an angel out in front directing traffic? Because I know how my kids drive. And God, would you get them to the place safely? He promises us that he will give his angels charge over us. Remember, these are not promises that we will never endure any of these things, that they'll never affect our lives. But it is a promise that we need not fear. Because as we lean into our protective relationship with our Father. He is the Almighty, the Shaddai, the Elyon. Nothing comes to my life that does not come through his hand of protective grace. So here's what I know. I know that in an age of COVID, we should be wise and we should be cautious and we should be respectful of those around us and loving and kind. But I also know this. That COVID will never affect my life without coming through the protective hand of El Shaddai, El Yon, my God. Doesn't mean I won't get it. I might. But I won't get it because I'm being foolish. And I won't get it without God knowing and allowing that it comes into my life. This is the promise of Psalm 91. There was a missionary who served in the land of India. He was a missionary to Muslims in the last century, really two centuries ago. And um, his name was Henry Martin. His family cautioned him and warned him about going to work with 
the Muslim peoples and, and working in the villages of India where leprosy and other diseases were rampant and they were so concerned for his safety. And Henry Martin famously said, I am immortal. I cannot die until God is finished with me in this life. And when he is done with me, he knows where to find me. Do not be afraid. Be wise, be cautious, wash your hands, wear a mask, do the wise things, but do not be afraid for God covers you under his wings.